What's going on, everybody? I'm Andrew Ramos, and welcome to the Dawn of Sapiens podcast, episode one. In 1965, artist Rudolf Zallinger created the famous March of Progress image for a Time Life book series. Now, you guys probably don't know this image by name, but if you think about evolution, this is the image that's nine times out of ten going to pop into your mind. This is the image that has a chimpanzee-like creature, Noko walking on the left. In the middle, you have something like a half-erect Neanderthal. And on the right, you have modern humans fully erect. And this image has lived on from 1965 until now. And it's responsible for the way that most people think about evolution and evolution over time. And that's what I want to talk about today in this first episode. But I guess before I do that, I should probably pause and introduce myself. My name's Andrew Ramos. I was born and raised in Texas. Human origins has always been interesting to me, and I've always been curious about it. Early on, it remained nothing more than a curiosity. After graduating high school, I went to the Air Force uh, and became a radio frequency technician. And that's still what I do today on the civilian side of things. And after leaving the Air Force and having the GI Bill and veterans benefits available to me, I decided to get a degree in anthropology. And so in 2020, I completed that degree. For my undergrad thesis, I chose the topic of the evolution of running. Now, looking back, it was a ridiculous topic to choose because of how broad it was. Needless to say that the end result was a very wide-ranging thesis, but also a very, a very shallow thesis. It lightly covered anatomy, physiology, hunter-gatherer, hunting techniques, modern human ancestors, and on and on. But there was just too much to cover in for one thesis, for one undergrad thesis. But in the long run, it actually was the best topic I could have chosen because after graduating, I kept, I decided, you know, what's to keep me from continuing the research. So since 2022, that's really what I've been up to in my spare time. And it's sent me down so many different rabbit holes. And I've learned so much of not only the the story of human evolution, but the history of the research behind it. So that's why I'm starting this podcast. I've constantly had my mind blown by the data that I'm finding in these research papers that never really seems to get talked about in popular science. And one field that's been constantly blowing my mind is the field of ancient DNA, ancient genetics or paleogenetics. And because of this, I decided to go back to school to get a certificate in evolutionary medicine with a focus on genetics. Not so I can become an expert at at ancient DNA, but more so I can have a better understanding of when I'm reading these research papers. And so I finished that last year, 2022. And I thought now the beginning of 2023 was a good time to start this podcast. As far as future plans, my goal is to be admitted into a graduate degree by the end of 2023 or mid-2024. But until then, I, I plan on releasing an episode a month of the Donner Sapiens podcast. And I also have a YouTube channel that I'm releasing videos on the same topic. Um, I have one on Denisovans and, and their genetic lineage and, and where they kind of basically where the DNA in modern of modern humans indicates 
these Denisovans, these early human cousins were living. So that's me and my plans and, and my background. But to, for today's episode, let's jump back into this concept of evolution and evolution over time. And I've been thinking about this a lot and how the and how the fact of wanting to simplify stories or simplify facts into a coherent narrative causes us to leave out details or ignore details. And it does create a more coherent narrative and an easier to digest narrative. But it also results in a loss of accuracy and a loss of um, a three-dimensional understanding of the past. One thing that popped up when I'm doing uh, unrelated research is the fact that if you go back to that image I was talking about, the March of Progress, where you got chimpanzee on the left, Neanderthal in the middle, and modern humans on the right, that image set the stage for how we think of evolution as a linear process as the title indicates, a march of progress. You have, you know, a chimpanzee-like creature morphing, transitioning from a primitive creature to a superior advanced creature, which is modern humans in that line of thinking. But what I found interesting is when you're looking at the research and the evolution of human ancestors and archaic ancestors, you kind of realize there's a different story going on. It's not one single population morphing into the ne- a, a more advanced species. It's not from chimpanzee to Neanderthal. And it's not even one species dying off and the little remaining population morphing in to the next species. And then that species dies off, but some of those survivors morph into the next species. Because if you look at human ancestors, at some of the earliest human ancestors, such as Australopithecus afarensis, the first fossil evidence of that species is about 3.85 million years ago. And then if you go to the next species that's believed to be in the human lineage, Australopithecus africanus, first arrives about 3.33 million years ago. And then you can go even further with Homo habilis about 2.5 million years ago. Uh, And then further you get Homo erectus about 1.89 million years ago. And then much later at about 310,000 years ago, you get us, Homo sapiens. Now we can reconstruct that March of Progress image with more appropriate species like the ones I just laid out because that's another misconception that we evolved from chimpanzees. In reality, we evolved from a common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans. In other words, chimpanzees have been evolving just as long as humans have, so we're not evolved from them. So if we reconstruct this March of Progress image with instead of chimpanzee on the left, you get something like, Australopithecus afarensis on the left, uh, and in the middle, instead of Neanderthal, you get Homo erectus, and then, you know, modern humans on the right. That's more accurate, but it still ignores an aspect of time and an aspect of evolution that I, I just sit there and wonder if, by ignoring these two aspects, it kind of sucks the life out of the experience of these creatures, of these hominins. 
And what I'm talking about is AF forensis, you know, they appeared 3.85 million years ago. And then the next species, Africanus, about 3.33 million years ago. And because we want a simple, digestible, digestible narrative, we go directly from 3.85 to 3.3 from Australopithecus afarensis straight to Australopithecus africanus and on down through the species. But here's the thing. Even after Australopithecus africanus appeared on the scene at 3.3 million years ago, afarensis continued to exist for another 380,000 years. Now, let me pause and uh, just to kind of put this in a broader perspective, let me introduce uh, a, a measuring stick of sorts. And bear with me because it might not make sense at first, but I think in the end it'll help to understand how large of time spans we're talking here. The Roman Republic was founded around 509 BCE. And the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, collapsed sometimes near 1,453 CE. So that, in total, was about 1,962 years of Roman civilization. Let's just round this up to 2,000 years. And if we apply this to the amount of time that Afarensis survived after the first appearance of Africanus, that's 380,000 years or 190 Roman civilizations or Roman units. And if you go down the line, you see the same thing. After Homo habilis appeared, Africanus survived for 300,000 years or 153 Roman units. And after the arrival of Homo erectus, habilis survived even longer for 490,000 years or 250 Roman civilizations. Now, these species lived simpler lives. They didn't create amphitheaters. They didn't create roads or art. And yet, they survived for large amounts of time after the next species appeared. And because of human hubris, we ignore these time spans because that's not part of the human story, of our story, of our lineage. Those dead ends don't matter. Those 380,000-year gaps And yet, if you want to understand the past and the evolution of our species and even just three-dimensionalize the experience of these animals, of these creatures, of these hominins, of these human ancestors, you can't ignore this. Because rather than this march of progress where one species gives way to the next, you have many of these individuals, these populations existing at the same time. Long lines of grandmothers to daughters, to granddaughters, of grandfathers, to fathers, to sons and grandsons. Countless little boys throwing rocks in the stream. Countless little girls picking flowers. And yet, because it doesn't matter to our story, to our lineage, these time spans get ignored. Now, from a purely scientific perspective, a geneticist might argue that the more important part of this argument is the fact that Many of these species probably were isolated at times and then came into contact and interbred and injected new uh, gene versions or gene alleles into the different populations, which works to create genetic diversity. And I'm sure that's true, 
but to me, it's the human aspect of this. We're just throwing away hundreds of thousands of years of these species' history because it doesn't matter to us and our our narrative, you know, in the same manner that that March of Progress image shows chimpanzees transitioning into superior forms, and then finally you have us, modern humans. I just find it amazing that these species coexisted with each other for so long. I wonder what those experiences were like after being isolated for who knows hundreds if not thousands or tens of thousands of years what that moment was like whenever they encountered each other did they really recognize each other as as what we would call different species and if they did did they care we'll probably never know the answer to that but it's interesting to think about now that example of the life history of these human ancestral species was large chunks of time, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of years long. Now I want to jump to a second example that is more on the scale of tens of thousands of years. In 2021, the results of a research paper made its way on headlines all around the web and in print. This is the research out of the University of California by Shinjun Zhang and colleagues in 2021, entitled Tibetan Selection on High Elevation Survivability. The results propagated throughout popular science, and basically it was the fact that the archaic hominins, uh, Denisovans, and Tibetan ancestral populations interbred and these ancestral Tibetans inherited the e pass one allele that allowed them to better survive in high elevation environments. On its own, that's pretty interesting, right? The fact that a modern human population owes this, uh, what you could call a superior phenotype to the admixture from an archaic, long extinct human species. That alone's pretty interesting. But here's the value of reading the research papers yourself. Because when I was reading through that paper, I I saw something even more interesting to me. The research showed that this allele was inherited about 49,000 years ago, which is in itself shocking because Denisovans and even Neanderthals, they went extinct not too long after that. By 30,000 years, Denisovans and Neanderthals were extinct. Although there is some signs that maybe Denisovans held on a little longer in somewhere in the Australia, Papua, New Guinea area. But here's the really interesting insight from that paper. Okay, so they found that 49,000 years ago, the Salil was inherited in ancestral Tibetan populations. But they also found that that Alil wasn't positively selected for until... 9,000 years ago. Now, in a world of human evolution or evolution in general, and especially natural selection, we're taught, or at least it's explained and thought of in a way of a very linear and almost immediate cause and effects. You know, the females of a species is selective of mates and they want the strongest male, uh, the smartest male, and 
That way, the female's offspring will have these traits. And so you get a very nice, tidy cause and effect. Female chooses strongest male. Female's baby is a strong baby. Female chooses smartest male. Female's offspring is smart. But this research from the University of California is actually showing you how it's much more complex. Ancestral Tibetans inherited this allele about 49,000 years ago. And it didn't become positively selected for until 9,000 years ago. That means that this gene allele floated around in the population's genomes for 40,000 years as a neutral allele. Okay, we're not usually taught to think of evolution like this, where the cause is 40,000 years before the effect. Inheriting this allele through genetic admixture with Denisovans was the cause, but the effect didn't really take hold until 9,000 years ago, and Denisovans were long gone, and the thought of a mother picking a uh, Denisovan to mate with because it had better survivability in high elevations probably wasn't in her thought process. That's probably not what she was thinking about. Who knows what she was thinking about? But whether it was one female or several and, and several male Denisovans and the admixture from these individuals didn't take effect until 40,000 years later. We haven't even had civilization for that long. So it really puts into perspective that natural selection, you know, the, the, the tidy, simple narratives of natural selection and, you know, mate selection, it's all relevant and it's all um, valid. But this study shows you how complex natural selection is, where a gene inherited 40,000 years ago as a neutral allele, as useless but not harmful suddenly becomes beneficial about 9,000 years ago when presumably the ancestral Tibetans decided to migrate up to the Tibetan plateau. And so from the time of admixture to the time it became a phenotypic benefit, 40,000 years or about 20 Roman civilizations in length. And that, and you know, what's really interesting is that's just one gene from one admixture event, from a chance encounter. There's 20,000 genes in the human genome. And, you know, that's not even considering non-coding regions that control regulation, gene regulation, among other stuff. So that shows you how we got to uh, consider time when we're talking about evolution and natural selection. And it shows you the complexity of evolution. So the first example was in the hundreds of thousands of years time span. This example was in the tens of thousands of years time span. And the last example is covering about 3,000 years or one and a half Roman civilizations. Out of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany, evolutionary anthropologist Fabrizio Maffesoni released a research paper in 2020. This paper returns the results of a DNA analysis of a toe bone from Denisova Cave. Now, this toe bone is labeled as coming from an individual called Denisova 5, but it's been given the nickname the Altai Neanderthal. 
And again, reading this paper really reminded me the benefits of doing your own research and, and reading these papers for yourself because the data that you get from them is mind-blowing. And where it's easier to just fill in the gaps with uh, assumptions and narrative, the data in these papers that isn't well-known really fills in these gaps with actual scientific evidence. And it allows you and me to create more accurate hypotheses and, and narratives, if you want to call them that. So the DNA tells us that the Alti Neanderthal, which is dated to about 120,000 years ago, lived a very interesting life. It shows that for about 100 generations or 2,900 years before this individual's, basically its ancestors, they lived in a population of no bigger than 55 individuals. The research says it could have been as low as 30 individuals. Think about your life and how many new people you've met throughout your life and how many people you associate with daily. I'm willing to bet that most everybody listening to this has met more than 55 people in their lifetime. For nearly 3,000 years, these individuals only knew 30 to 55 people. This individual's grandmother only knew 30 to 55 people. The grandmother's grandmother only knew 30 to 55 people. Now you can look at this and think that what a terrible existence that would be. What a lonely existence. What a struggle it might have been. But you can also look at it and think about how intimate those relationships probably were. How strong they were. How much everybody depended on everybody else for survival. And which side of the coin you fall on, you know, is up to you. But I think both sides were probably experienced. What I like most about this research as it really gives you a window into some of these experiences that are so alien to most of us. And instead of guessing and creating stories in our head about what that must have been like, you know, what the interactions between Neanderthals and other Neanderthal groups or Neanderthals and modern humans, a lot of these research papers offer windows into these worlds that allow you to create more accurate narratives. And so this paper specifically, it shows you that Neanderthals, at least this population at this time in this region, was limited to a very small size for nearly 3,000 years. But it also shows you that they weren't completely isolated. Because part of the analysis actually showed that on average, every 29 years, a new person, a new Neanderthal would enter the population. But that's a very low average for one person to enter the gene pool every 29 years. Imagine you only knew 55 people for the first 28 years of your life, and then a new person shows up. You know, that's, that's a weird train of thought. You know, there's a lot of people that are shy just naturally anyways, but think of how overwhelming that must have been for some individuals when a stranger is a strange thing. A stranger is actually a foreign concept. And that also shows us that these populations in that region weren't very interconnected. 
it's easy to start wondering, well, how did that one individual get to the group? And was it, if it's a woman, you know, the natural inclination is to start creating these stories about she must have been kidnapped. But we know a lot of human populations and and probably Homo sapiens as a species in general is female exogamous or at sexual maturity, it's the females that leave their natal group. So I wouldn't jump to conclusions and say, oh, the Altine Neanderthal population every 29 years went on a raid and kidnapped a woman. Because we don't know if it was a male or a woman, and even if it was a woman, they're usually leaving their birth group anyways. The interesting thing to think about is, do they know about these other populations? And they go out as as an individual to find this new population to settle down with and, and become a member of? And if that's the case, it makes you wonder how this information is passed down generation to generation. But I think in total, one thing you can't ignore is there probably was struggle for these groups. For groups to be this small meant that the land probably couldn't support much more than 30 to 55 individuals. And we know that Neanderthals in general have very low genetic diversity compared to humans and Homo sapiens. So this kind of indicates that life was tough for Neanderthals. And this paper kind of shows you that as well, where such small populations very rarely meet and incorporate new individuals. And this isn't just speculation on my part, because a 2009 study by John Jacques Hublin, also out of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, and Will Robrokes out of Leiden University in the Netherlands, actually show that Neanderthal populations in these northern latitudes likely became isolated in valleys. For a long time, there was an argument that as glacial ice sheets expanded south, that would push Neanderthal populations south. And then whenever these ice sheets contracted, Neanderthal populations would go back north. But what this study is showing, you know, they're analyzing archaeological artifacts like stone tools and and specifically the style of tools in these northern latitude regions. And it's showing that in a lot of cases, rather than expanding ice sheets, pushing existing northern populations south, a lot of these northern populations are remaining in these northern valleys and northern environments and becoming locally extinct. And then when these ice sheets contract back northward, southern populations with different style of tools will migrate north and replace the old extinct populations in that environment. And so my point of this whole episode is to really get you to think about how we think about time and evolution. You know, many of our ancestral species survived for hundreds of thousands of years and probably interacted and interbred and introduced genetic diversity amongst the different populations. But as the Tibetan research showed, even whenever this genetic diversity is introduced, it might take another 40,000 years before this process of natural selection is initiated. And the Alti Neanderthal and its ancestors really humanize what the experience of some of these human ancestors must have been like. To exist so many thousands of years 
with only 30, 40, or 50 individuals in a population, that's something most of us can't even imagine. That's something even modern and recent human hunter-gatherers couldn't imagine. And yet a look at evolution, a look at human evolution, a look at human experience through these different time skills show you that the consideration of time really does matter when it comes to human origins or the human experience.